Well, good morning, everyone. Um, Grace and peace to you. Uh, As I mentioned, we've come now to the end of our time in Colossians, um, and that means that Advent and Christmas are fast approaching. And what we'll do for that time is our normal uh, routine. We'll have a series leading up to uh, Christmas and um, celebrating the birth and incarnation of our Lord. And I think in the meantime, in the couple weeks that we have before then, we'll spend some time in the Psalms. But this morning, uh, it's Colossians chapter 4, uh, verses twelve through or 2 through 18. And what I want to do is focus primarily on verses 2 through 6 that pertain to our mission as a church, as individuals, um, and as it pertains to outsiders, those who um, are not of faith in the Lord. So that will be our focus this morning on our mission, the great privilege that you and I have to share the good news, to invite others into God's redemptive plan, making all things new in his Son, Jesus Christ. And so that's where we want to begin, with this universe-spanning, all-encompassing divine plan, which centers completely and totally upon the person of Jesus. So um, I'd like to turn your attention to the Apostle's phrase there in verse 3, where he just says, the mystery of Christ. The mystery of Christ. And that phrase is a placeholder for everything that God is up to in the world and beyond. This plan that I spoke of, this all-encompassing plan, can just be narrowed into those words, the mystery of Christ. And in many ways, this mystery, as Paul terms it, is the central theme of this letter of Colossians. We find it in chapter 1, verse 27. The apostle says, this mystery, which is Christ in you. And then again, just a few short verses in chapter 2, verse 2, he says, God's mystery, which is Christ. So Colossians is about the unfolding of this mystery. Namely, that the man Jesus Christ, the one crucified and subjected to a shameful death on a cross outside Jerusalem, that that same one is also the Alpha and the Omega. That that Jesus is the one through whom all things came into existence. That that man pinned to a cross is the same one for whom all things were made. Colossians is about the unfolding of this wonderful mystery, the identity of the person of Jesus, And it can all be summed up in that wonderful phrase in chapter 1, verse 18, that he would have the first place in everything. The one who humbled himself to the point of death, Philippians 2, even death on a cross. The one who went to that lowest possible place and became the servant of all mankind. That same one God would raise up to his right hand on high that he would have the first place in everything over principalities and powers, over all the kingdoms and dominions of men. The first place in everything would be given to the man from Nazareth, Jesus Christ. So he is the heart of creation. 
He's the one through whom it came into existence. It reflects his majesty and his glory, every bit of creation, and he's the heart of new creation. He's the firstborn over all creation, and he's the firstborn from the dead, as you guys know from that great uh, section there in chapter 1. The man Jesus is the reason and the purpose for everything that exists. So, that's a brief summary um, that does not do justice to the mystery, right? But the mystery, primarily about Jesus, of course, this revelation of who he is. But here's the wonderful thing. This mystery is also about us. It concerns not just the head, but his body as well. It concerns all those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. Again, verse 27 of chapter 1, this mystery, he says, which is Christ in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So it speaks to this mystery, our union with Christ. We have been buried with him in baptism and raised up with him through faith. Chapter 2, verse 12 tells us. And so what it means is that you and I, because we are in Christ, because the Spirit has grafted us into his body, We share a common destiny with Jesus. As the head goes, so the body goes. We share a common destiny. Hence, chapter 3, verse 4, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. So, when the head is revealed to all the universe in glory, his true identity, then so also you and I, the body, we who believe, will be revealed with him also. And what that means, right, as we sang, I'll be conformed to your likeness, is that we will bear the image of Jesus in our lives. We will be completely conformed to his glorious image, that he would be, Romans chapter 8, verse 29, the firstborn among many brethren. Or, as our Epistle puts it, chapter 3, verse 11, that Christ would be in all, or would rather, Christ would be, is all, in all. Chapter 3, verse 11. Christ is all and in all. Again, the same thing as to say that he would have the first place in everything. So the future to which you and I are headed no matter what happens in this life, no matter what awaits us in this life, the future to which we are headed, to which the entire cosmos is headed, is one draped in the glory of Christ as the waters cover the earth. Christ will be all and in all. So there, in a nutshell, is this mystery, the divine plan that has for ages and ages past been hidden in God, and now at last revealed at the fullness of time in the coming of Jesus. Here is the reason for creation, that he would have the first place in everything, that he would be all and in all. That's why there is something rather than nothing. And this, right, this drama that reaches back to the very roots of history, the beginning of time, on into the consummation in the kingdom, this Drama, this mission, is what the church has been swept into, swept up into. It's the master narrative that our personal lives find 
their meaning in relation to. We have this little finite time in life, our little personal narrative that is rooted in this massive plan that God has for all creation. And so Paul, in his own words, he describes his place in this plan as chapter 1, verse 29. He's laboring to present every man complete in Christ. He sees that goal, Christ being all and in all, and he says, I'm laboring to present every man complete in Christ. And so you and I, there is our mission, our goal in life, or as the great C.S. Lewis put it, he came to this world and became a man, that's Jesus, in order to spread to other men the kind of life he has. Every Christian is to become a little Christ. The whole purpose of becoming a Christian is simply nothing else. So that we would present every man complete in Christ, that we would labor to see every person a little Christ, is our missional purpose. And here, in verses 2 through 6, the apostle gives us instructions about how to accomplish that goal. How to go about presenting every man complete in Christ. So it begins in verse 2 with these instructions on prayer. And then in verse 3, he moves to proclamation. And then verses 5, or verse 5, he tells us that we need to walk in wisdom. And then verse 6, he gives us instruction about our speech toward outsiders. So it's quite um, wonderful, um, exciting. We have this cosmic mystery of Jesus Christ, right? The mystery of God, hidden from ages and now revealed. And here he tells us, here's how it's revealed to others in very practical terms. Here's how the mystery of Jesus is manifested. And then he gives us some very concrete actions and things that we can all do. We can all pray. We can all, in our own bold or not so bold way, proclaim the gospel. We can walk, learn to walk in wisdom. And of course, we can model gracious, gracious speech in our lives. He says, this is how that mystery is revealed. Here's how others, our family and our friends and those we work with and etc., here's how they come to know that truth, if we can model and do these things in our own lives. So there's a a quick setup for the passage. And um, the first thing that he tells us to do is to, uh, verse 2 there, to devote ourselves to prayer. To devote ourselves to prayer. Now it hardly needs to be said But nothing worthwhile in the kingdom of God, nothing of any lasting value as it pertains to the mission of the church happens apart from prayer. Now, prayer is not a secret sauce or a magic bullet that we can just clasp our hands in prayer and call down blessing on whatever endeavor we please. But rather, what prayer does is align us with God's will. Prayer attunes us to what the Spirit is already doing among us. So where we would go and accomplish our own plans, when we pray, we are caught up into that wider stream of what God is at work. So Jesus says in John chapter 3, the Spirit um, blows uh, where He will. All right, and, and, and no one knows where he's working. God's plans are far above what our finite minds can encompass. But when we pray, we're 
little by little moving ourselves into conformity with what the Spirit is doing. And so ultimately, prayer is the difference between stalled out and shipwrecked endeavors that are born of the flesh, that ultimately profit nothing, and genuine success, which is born of the Spirit, which gives life. So that being the case, that prayer aligns us with what the Spirit is up to, that being the case, we're encouraged to devote ourselves to prayer. To devote ourselves. Think about the meaning of that word, to devote. That's not a mystery what that means. It's to, to devote yourselves to something is to persist in it. It's, if, you're, if you're devoted to your wife or your husband and your family, uh, y- you remain with them. It conjures up images of loyalty and sacrifice and devotion, or that's the word, of commitment, rather. And the bottom line, I think, in devotion, to be devoted to anything, is consistency. The mission that we've been called to um, calls for, draws forth from us, non-sporadic, non-spasmodic prayer. It calls for this mission to be undergirded by continual devotion in prayer. So that means at specific times in the day, morning and midday and evening, that means interspersed throughout our every activity that we are devoting ourselves to prayer. And of course, Epaphras, as we find later on in the chapter, verse 12, he is our example. He says, Paul says that he is always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers. There is a picture of devotion. Always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers. So not only consistency, but devotion in prayer also carries the idea of earnestness or fervency in prayer. So if consistency appeals to discipline in our lives, right? Just the hard work of making sure that we pray. Earnestness appeals to our affections. Meaning that our hearts ought to be in our prayers. Devote yourselves to prayer. James chapter 5, verse 17. um, James tells us that the prophet Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Meaning no different than any other person. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. He prayed earnestly earnestly. In other words, he was devoted. Or the author of Hebrews tells us about our Lord, that he offered up prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears. Hebrews 5 verse 7. Um, so the scriptural examples that were given, and I, have, I didn't even mention the Psalms. These are not disinterested and lukewarm prayers, but they're earnest pleadings. The prayers of devotion. Now, I imagine here we have in view our personal lives, right? Which is obviously the case, right? We, we need to have these sorts of prayer lives. But it seems that the apostle has corporate prayer in view, right? When we all get together. Because the command that he gives us in uh, verse 2 there, devote ourselves to prayer, is the same description that we find in Acts for the early church. Acts chapter 1, verse 14, Luke tells us that 
they were continually devoting themselves to prayer. There in the upper room, the twelve, the mother of Jesus, with a larger company of 120 disciples, all devoting themselves to prayer. Acts 2.42, after the Spirit descended upon the church and they were scattered out into the city with tongues of fire, speaking in the languages of other men, and Peter delivers a sermon that converts 3,000 people, or 2,000, one of the two, in one blow, it says after that they, the church, were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So when the Apostle Paul says, devote yourselves to prayer, it speaks to a culture of corporate prayer. It speaks to a collective devotion that we would have here together as a church. Because prayer is a central activity of the church along with teaching the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread, the celebrating of the supper, prayer is a central activity. It's not just a bookend to other more important activities. We pray when we start, we pray when we end. Prayer itself deserves its own devotion. Prayer is something that we should devote our time and attention to, not as just individuals, but as a church at large. Put simply, Prayer matters. It's not an exaggeration by any means to say that the success or failure of our church community depends on prayer. It's not an exaggeration to say that if we don't gather to pray, to seek the Lord, and we're devoted in it, we will no longer be as a church. So, that leads us to our next element of the mission, and that's Proclamation. Proclamation. Verses 3 through 4, the apostle says, uh, praying um, at the same time for us as well, that God will open to us a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have been imprisoned, that I, make it, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. So our devotion to prayer is expressed in many ways watching, gratitude, supplication, but here specifically in the advancement of the word and the spreading of the gospel. Now here we have from the Apostle Paul an unabashed appeal for the necessity of prayer. Even for him, the great apostle, it was not automatic. He asks the Colossians here, he asks all throughout his letters, please pray for me that I may unfold this mystery, that I may speak the way that I ought to speak. And so he asks to pray for, first, opportunity. He asks the Colossian church to pray for an open door for the word. And now as he um, dictates these words to the, the person who was ultimately writing this letter, Apostle Paul finds himself in prison. Behind bars and what he prays for, despite all that, despite these great obstacles before him, is an open door for the word that he'd be able to speak. Or as he says in, uh, in, uh, it's either 1st or 2nd Timothy, though I'm chained, the word of God is not chained. And again, that's just the nature of the word, this gospel message that we have. 
It is a conquering word. If you look at the Acts of the Apostles, the word has this almost independent existence. And many times throughout that letter, Luke will tell us, this is Acts 12.24, that the word continued to grow and be multiplied. That when Herod and all those who were persecuting the early church tried to shut them up, tried to not have them speak, the word overcame. It continued to grow and it multiplied. That's just what the word does. And so he tells us, pray for these open doors. And then he says, right in, in, in two, he said in verse two, he says, we need to pray and then watch in our prayers. And this is what we're watching for. It'd be quite ridiculous to pray, Lord, open a door for me, and then not to be watching for that door to be opened, for the gospel to have room to be shared. Right? And it just needs a little bit of room in your own life, at work, wherever you find yourself, just needs a little room because the word grows and it multiplies on its own. So we're to pray for opportunity in this devotion on the one hand, and then on the other, we're to pray for revelation um, of this message. In the end there of verse 4, the apostle says that he needs to make it clear the way he ought to speak. Now, in the Greek, that's one word, and it's phanoreo, and it, all it means is to reveal. And that's an interesting connection, because he says the word that he's preaching is the mystery of Christ. And he says, what I need to do, what I need you to pray for that I can accomplish is that I would reveal it. The gospel is a mystery that needs to be revealed. And that underscores even further our dependence upon prayer. This revelation of the gospel, our ability to speak as we ought to speak and for others to understand it, is beyond natural capacity. It requires a divine unveiling to the person who's hearing it, right? The same words can be of no profit to one and salvation to another because of the unveiling work of the Holy Spirit. So, in summary, a good deal of our prayer lives should revolve around those two requests. Opportunity, praying for open doors, and then revelation, that I may speak as I ought to speak. So it's important um, in our prayer lives, whatever they look like, not to lose a missional edge in prayer. Where we always pray, give us this day our daily bread, Right, whatever that looks like for us, whatever those immediate pressing needs are. But then we forget to pray, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, of course, daily bread is not unimportant. We're invited many times across the scripture to pray for such things. However, our prayers need to come more and more into conformity with the mystery of Christ. God's plan that sweeps from beginning to end that our prayers would reflect this and we'd say, Lord, always open a door and help us to take it, help us to speak. So, obviously, um, we pray for open doors and we need to walk through them. And that means if we're walking through them, we need to speak. We need to speak. Now, the gospel is obviously spoken in our works. Um, Let your light shine before men. Um, and in our example, and we'll talk about that more in a minute, but primarily the gospel advances in word. 
It advances through human speech. Now think about it. What we've been given, distinct from any other group of people, any other institution, is good news. Good news, not good advice, right? Good advice will tell you, go do something. Good advice um, is, is, here's how you can fix up your life. We have good news. And what you do with news is you announce it. You share it. That's our part. We share the good news. And on the part of the hearers, well, they just have to listen. We have to speak the good news. Look at what um, early on in Colossians the Apostle Paul says, he says, The gospel is constantly bearing fruit and increasing. This is chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. Even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the, uh, the grace of God and truth just as you learned it from Epaphras. So the gospel here is likened to a, a seed with the power of life in it. Think of Jesus' uh, parable. The kingdom of God is like a sower who went out to sow. And what he sows is the word. It's a seed with the power of life in it, and it's planted in, or it's planted through the ear. People need to hear it. Someone has to teach them the gospel. And I think it's significant um, how he describes it here, that the gospel is described as taught and learned. It's taught and learned. Now, we live in a post-Christian culture, meaning that... um, the shared worldview, and that deep background that we could rely upon at one time is now gone. And what I mean, that, what I mean by that is that your neighbors, your friends, your family had basically a Christian worldview, um, and that made the gospel intelligible to them, right? Even if they weren't Christians, they understood basic Christian concepts that would make this message of Jesus easy to understand, Now, that's not the case any longer. For the most part, except for a few pockets here, and they're a largely secularized culture. And we can't take for granted, right, that the people we are rubbing shoulders with every day um, understand concepts such as moral law or sin or even something like truth itself. And what that means is that the days of one-stop shop evangelism are basically over. Most cases, right, where we're called to speak the word to people are going to involve much investment. We have to start from square one and build and pour into such and such a person. It means, like Paul says here, teaching and learning. So we pray for these open doors, but the truth is they might require a lot from us. Right, Lord, open that door. You don't realize that it's not just a one momentary action of boldness where you muster yourself up and and do that. That's very good. It might require more after that. Follow-up, continual teaching, Bible study, whatever it may be. So, we pray. We pray that the Lord might open a door, and then we walk through it, and we share the gospel. So, as it pertains to our mission... Prayer and proclamation are paramount. We we just can't get away from how important these are as it pertains to our mission. There is no mission without them. And so from there, Paul um, moves to more general instruction regarding this mission, and in particular, our relationship with others, or or, I'm sorry, our relationship with outsiders or non 
believers. So sharing the gospel is still in view, but now he, he nuances it more, and he gives us further instruction. He begins now in verse 5, Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of, your, of the opportunity. So in our dealings with outsiders, the main virtue necessary is wisdom. And what this speaks to, the need for wisdom, is the complex and difficult environment that we are sent into. Jesus says to his own disciples in Matthew ten sixteen, Behold, I send you out as sheep among wolves. So, be shrewd or be wise as serpents. There are attendant factors and unforeseen eventualities in our dealings with outsiders that need wisdom. And wisdom is especially needed in hostile situations. As that becomes ever so little more and more the case around those who are not Christians. We need wisdom. So, here's the point. How the disciples went about their mission is just as important that they went about their mission. How they did it was just as important that they did it. Um, I don't know if I have the quote here. I don't, but it's from a commentator on this passage. He says, Early Christians were a minority group in a largely hostile world, and ill-judged attempts to assert their faith or impose it on others were not likely to be productive. So we need boldness. We need nerve to share the gospel. They're absolutely necessary. But most of all, what we need is wisdom. What wisdom does is it reads the situation, it judges the situation, and it deploys certain tactics or certain ways of speaking to people when they're needed. Wisdom teaches us not just when to speak, but when not to speak. Wisdom teaches us when we do speak, how to speak, and so on and so forth. You know, in the scripture, um, wisdom is a royal virtue. When Solomon is going to ascend the throne, what does he pray for when God visits him? Wisdom. He needs wisdom to rule. And that's similar to the function that wisdom plays in our lives. We've, we need boldness. We need courage. We need all these other virtues, love and compassion in our lives. And wisdom kind of sits above them, sits above them, and it deploys them as needed. So we need wisdom. So there are certain tactics, right, that maybe look good, and they appeal to the home team. You know, we think, yes, someone's standing up for truth finally. Someone's, you know, sticking up for justice in the world or whatever. And it feels good, and it plays well with the home team, but often it proves ineffective. It's just for show. It's just for the home team. Now, wisdom is also necessary considering our goal. Our goal is to win people over to the gospel. This is not a culture war. It's not a political battle where we can bowl over people irrespective of the body count. We're trying to win outsiders. That's the key word. We're trying to win them. And that takes tact. It takes understanding. It takes subtlety. It takes a very shrewd mindset to win people. Um, One, uh, I don't have this one either. One church father, he says, Paul tells us, 
that we should discuss religion at the right time and place and in great humility. We should behave one way toward the powerful, another way toward the middle class, another way toward those who are down the social scale, and yet another way toward those who are gentle and another way to those who are irritable. Wisdom. Think about it. Let's say this person that you're trying to reveal the mystery to, let's consider their relationship to you. Is it your spouse? Maybe one of your children? Is it your brother or sister, your parents, your friends, an acquaintance? Is it a coworker? Is it your boss? Is it, is it a stranger or et cetera, et cetera? The way that you're going to speak to your boss about the mystery is not the same way you would speak to your coworker. The same way you speak to your brother is not the same way you would speak to your children. On and on and on. Further consider, what is the relationship, their relationship to the faith? Are they secular? Do they have some familiarity with the message of the scriptures? Are they backslidden? Are they agnostic? Are they apostate? Are they a part of another religion? The way I would speak to my boss, who is a Muslim, is not the way I would speak to my brother, who is a backslidden Christian. We need wisdom. Or, again, consider what is their openness to the gospel. Is this a person just seeking and ready to lap up whatever you have to say, or are they somewhat open? Are they uninterested, or are they hostile? I'm not going to speak to my um, hostile atheist co-worker the same way I would speak to my boss who's seeking an, an open Muslim. They're just different. And so for all these various reasons and all these intersections, we need to conduct ourselves in wisdom toward outsiders. And when we do so, the apostle says, verse 5, we make the most of every opportunity. Um, it's a compound word, ek and um, agarazo. It just means to buy out. Um, some commentators or some translations have redeem. But the sense is that we're not leaving anything behind. We're buying it all up. And it refers to those open doors that we're praying for. We're not missing them, and then when we get the opportunity, we're buying up. We're making the most of it. And clearly what this implies is that when we are unwise, right, in our relationship to outsiders, when we're unwise, it's a waste. We're not making the most of that time. When we're just going about our days on autopilot, when we're not walking in wisdom, we're wasting the time. Um, again, I'm missing all these quotes. Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 16. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. He says, be careful how you walk. Be mindful. Be aware of what your speech and your actions communicate to the others. So when you have those opportunities, make the most of them. And so let's start to draw this to a close. The apostle follows up his instruction on wisdom with further instruction now on speech. Again, it pertains toward outsiders, though it's applicable to every person. Verse Six, still don't have it. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will walk, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. He says, let your speech be seasoned with salt. In the ancient world, salt was either used as a preservative or to enhance flavor. And the latter seems to be in view here. He says, let your speech be seasoned with salt. And what he means to say is that our speech, as those who are in Christ, should have a distinct flavor. 
meaning it should be identifiably different from pagan, non-baptized speech. And this distinct flavor should be attractive. It should be savory. It should be speech that's consistent with the new self. And what are the virtues of this new self? Chapter 3, verse 12. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. It's to be that kind of speech. As opposed to speech of the old self. Chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech, and lying. So put simply, if we want to win outsiders, we need to demonstrate in word and in deed the attractiveness of the gospel. Our speech needs to reflect that. An indispensable element in any form of persuasion, whether you're trying to win some to the gospel or whatever, is attraction. If I'm trying to win you over to be a vegan, I have to somehow show you and do the impossible that it is attractive, right? That you might actually want to do this. And so it is with the gospel, right? We need to show people it's attractive, and we do so through this seasoned speech. So if we're complaining at work or we're smearing others around our family or what have you, how is that in any way ordered toward winning people? How is that consistent with who we are in Christ? What we need is in our speech is the distinctive flavor of grace. Let your speech always be with grace. The apostle says there in verse 6. And grace, of course, is the distinctive characteristic, flavor, we might say, of Jesus Christ our Lord. We saw his glory, John, the beloved apostle says, chapter 1, verse 14 of his gospel. We saw his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So Paul imagines our witness carrying a certain attractive gracious flavor in this passage. And in another place, he imagines it not as a flavor, but as an aroma. 2 Corinthians 2.15, we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So in all our dealings with outsiders, those who do not yet believe in the mystery of Christ, In all of our dealings, not merely our speech, we are to embody a particular flavor and the particular taste of Jesus, such as our calling, because such was his manner to us. In the upper room before Jesus was, um, well, would betray Judas as, or would unveil Judas as the betrayer before he would institute the supper and go to the cross, He knelt down and he washed his disciples' feet and he told them, I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. So the command you should do is undergirded by Jesus' loving kindness to us, as I did to you. So his grace that was shown to us on the cross enables our grace toward others. So with that, we turn now toward communion where our Lord promises to meet us. And these elements are the embodiment and the representative of all the grace of Jesus that we've spoken of, his broken body and his shed blood. He gave himself once for all on the cross, and he gives himself to us here once again in these elements. 
So let us partake in faith, not in rote obedience, receiving true food and true drink that we might love him and others as he loves us. So come up, um, receive the elements now, and I'll lead us in just a moment.